Last time, we chatted with Allison Jeffries and Jim Goldberg of Red Propeller, experts in real estate branding and placemaking. We learned how they help builders and developers make their new housing more inviting places to live or to live near through their understanding of the points of view of the people who will actually live there. During our discussion, Allison spoke of her many years working with Vulcan Real Estate, the developer of many of the buildings in what's now known as Seattle's South Lake Union neighborhood. Most poignant were her memories of Paul Allen, to whom she voiced profound respect because he was willing to devote so much time and effort, so many resources, into expressing a particular vision for the future of the city. Today, we're going to get to learn from someone who has devoted many years helping people in Seattle learn and appreciate their built environment. Stacy Siegel, the executive director of the Seattle Architecture Foundation, or the SAF, is here to discuss why connecting people to the architecture, the design, and the history of Seattle matters. Today, we'll get to explore the role of the built environment in improving health, happiness, and community, and what happens to the culture of a city when people, so many people, move here, and what steps can be taken to help ground these people to the place that they're moving to. And finally, we'll look at how hiding beneath the surface of practically every place we go here, even natural places and wilderness, are the people, many of them long gone, who originally designed them. Hey, Stacy. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thanks. So for our guests that don't know, tell us about the Seattle Architecture Foundation. Sure. The Seattle Architecture Foundation is a nonprofit and we exist to help connect people to the past, present, and future of our city and really to inspire them about how architecture makes a difference in their lives. And what is your role there? I am the executive director of the organization. We're a staff of three okay. um, and hundreds of volunteers. Okay. And tell me, uh, what is the, your journey that got you from where you were to Seattle and the Seattle Architecture Foundation as the ED? My background is um, all of my career has been spent in the nonprofit sector, mostly working in areas of housing and homelessness and other um, human services. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, moved to Chicago for about 13 years where I met my husband, and he's an architect. Um, while we were living in the city, we explored all the historical architecture that um, you know Chicago has to offer. It's an old and big, big city. Um, when we moved here to Seattle, we were looking to be closer to, you know, the, the environment somewhere that could get us out into nature a little bit more. Um, I, after working for about seven years in, uh, human services, I found this job. I was looking for something different, a job that would connect me to the city because I was still somewhat new. It had been about seven years and this popped up and I thought, wow, what a, what a cool way to get to work with something that's fun for me. Um, you know, I care about architecture and the way it impacts people's lives. Uh, I guess too, when you work in the nonprofit sector, you think about mission a lot and why you work in a place. Usually you're, there's a connection that you have to the mission. And I thought, hmm, is this as important as housing and homelessness and can I help raise funds for that? And I thought, well, gee, what's more important than the built environment and the environment around us? You know, it really impacts the way we move through the city, the way we live, um, where we live, and, you know, what is more important than that? Awesome. I lived in Chicago for, as you know, for quite a few years. I went to the Art Institute, and I had a business actually working with architectural art. And then when I moved back to the Pacific Northwest, I had to let that go because my assumption was that, really, that in Chicago, because it may be because of the history or maybe more importantly, like the harsh weather, People really were willing to invest in spaces, um, you know, homes and hotels. And, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on architecture just because I think that's where you spend a lot of time. It's so hot in the summer and cold in the winter. And moving back out to Seattle, I sort of let that go because I just – it seems like the emphasis here is more on the outdoors. 
So I'm just wondering kind of how you, coming from Chicago, which has like this intense sort of emphasis on architecture, you know, how you discovered Seattle kind of architecturally as a contrast to kind of where you left. Well, again, my husband, because he's an architect, uh, he kind of was, believe it or not, a little bit bored with what was happening in Chicago architecturally at the time. And he was really drawn to Seattle's architecture. Um, And I was surprised because we often don't think of Seattle as an architecture city. Um, But as I learned more about some of the residential work that's done here, it's often work that people don't see. um, I was pretty surprised and impressed at the quality of work that you see here. There's a lot of uh, focus on craftsmanship, a lot of custom detailing done here, interesting materials that you don't always see in the Midwest. You see a lot of stone. Um, Out there here, you see more wood and natural materials. So that's part of a piece of what drew us here. Okay. Um, When I first came into the city, I remember getting off the bus downtown, and I was sort of shocked. Um, The city felt really small, really clean. Um, It didn't feel very vibrant at all. I was think I was at like Westlake Center, um, Mm. and I was like, oh, boy. (laughs) I I was like missing uh, the grit and the culture and just the, you know, diverse architecture. In Chicago, when you go and stand on a street, uh, you feel very small because the buildings are cavernous. They're tall. And here – the heights are just, just not the same. When Very I lived different. in Chicago, one of my funnest things to do is I had a girlfriend at the time who had a pickup truck at the Art Institute, and I would lie in the back of her truck, and she would drive through the um, core, you know, around downtown, and um, I would look up at the buildings, and it was just like the strangest thing because you felt the canyon effect, yeah. you know, which you normally don't see when you're walking, oftentimes just kind of looking down. So right. it's incredible. So besides your husband, who's your favorite architect? Um, you know, I probably can't say that I have one. Obviously, like Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, you see his work. It's pretty it's pretty stunning. And I think locally, I've always been a fan. I really like uh, BCJ's work, Bill and Swinsky Jackson. But there are so many firms, like mm-hmm. it's hard to name just one. Sure. I probably shouldn't even name two. No. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so before our show, you mentioned that you had traveled the world really to study architecture with your husband mm-hmm. or just to, just to explore the world itself. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there's any place kind of globally that um, from a sort of architecture or built environment just really impact you in terms mm-hmm. of your kind of awareness of the importance of the built environment and architecture. Yeah. I feel like it's everywhere that we go because we often spend time in, in a city – um, and then we end up going out in nature. So you, you just see the, um, you know, it's just so different in each place. But Spain was a really good example. We, we toured quite a bit in Spain many, many years ago, um, you know, from the Alhambra to more contemporary work like the museum in Bilbao, um, the Guggenheim. And so that city probably had a pretty big impact because you're seeing small old cities mosques, um, and then this, these huge contemporary works in, in a very small town. I think how um, expressive um, the Spanish architecture is, right? Yeah. Like color, in terms of color and form, and right? Compared, yes. Yeah. And I think to hear about how um, the Guggenheim Museum really changed Bilbao, you know, it's it's just a small town with this amazing work that people come from all over. So that, that was a impactful trip. And then recently last year, we just went to Marfa, Texas. I mean, at a completely different scale. <laughs> we visited uh, El Paso and then, you know, small town uh, Marfa. To, and it was pretty incredible, the the level of art and architecture really? that was there. Hmm. Um, and then we went out to uh, Big Bend National Park. So again, I think we, uh, and I, someone said it was good that we did that trip and we went all the way out to Big Bend because they said you could, uh, you know, really see what, what um, Donald Judd saw, the artist. Oh, so wonderful. what inspired him. So. Good. Well, um, a big theme of our podcast is, you know, place and how it matters just for us as human beings. And so 
I wanted to ask you, you've kind of studied this globally and you're an advocate locally for understanding the role of the place in terms of just human existence. Um, so why do places matter and, and spe the specifics of a place um, mm -hmm. for people that live there? I think, um, I mean, it matters for uh, numerous reasons, but, you know, we have a, we have emotion. Um, I think we form emotional connections to specific places. We have memories there. Um, I think when we step into a space, it impacts the way we feel immediately. Um, does it help, does it help us, um, feel open and welcoming or do we feel closed off and scared and afraid? So I, I think that there's just a lot of emotions involved in a space um, and that's we, important. So with Susan Robb was here a few episodes mm -hmm. ago and she was just talking about what a train wreck Frankfurt was mm -hmm. uh, because it was all, you know, bombed during World War II and had to be rebuilt and mm -hmm. it was all sort of this mm -hmm. communist Bauhaus, whatever, you know, this um, not inspiring to her. So is there an example in your life and your travels or locally where um, where the built environment was really diminishing of the potential, you know, just to be comfortable? And I think of airplanes. The interiors of airplanes are so are so uncomfortable. Yeah. I think just by definition being up in the air. But I just wonder if there's a better way. But there's way to... windows. I was going to say a train. When I first moved to Chicago and started taking the L, um, I couldn't – I like to take the bus way better. And most people in Chicago don't really like to, but it was like, I can see where I'm going and where I'm getting out and landmarks. And I felt like when I was underground, you know, there's a couple different stops that are like, um, Chicago Avenue. And I never knew which one I was over time you learn, but I just, just felt like it was boring. I couldn't see anything. I felt really like nervous for uh -huh. a while. Okay. Well, good. Well, let's talk about SAF. And mm -hmm. so who comes to your events? Who who participates? Um, do you have a membership or is it more yeah. of an outreach to the broader community? We um, serve we serve a public audience. So it is a broad audience from kids to seniors, a pretty vast range of ages and backgrounds. Um, all of our programs should be accessible to anyone that wants to learn more about design. Um, we do we like to say we serve the design interested public, but that could mean people that are usually people that are seeking us out. Um, they want to learn about architecture, history, or design, um, or sometimes they just want to learn about their city. But really, they can come to us with no architectural training or background, and they should be able to enjoy and appreciate our programs. And it looks like you focus on youth as well. We do. We do. We why, focus. On, why? Why is that important? Or why yeah. Is that well, we feel youth are stewards of our city, so they're they're kind of the future of our city. So we really want them to understand. Um, how the city came to be, what's what's online in the future, um, and how and really how their voice matters, how design can solve social issues, things like housing and homelessness, how architects play a role in that as well. Great. Um, and then the um, the fun factor. It seems like you had a, a prior to being the executive director at SAF, mm -hmm. you um, worked in homelessness and um, sort of equity issues, and mm -hmm. so the, and this was had all of that mission, but also was like more fun. So I'm just kind of curious how um, how the fun factor sort of plays out in your role directing this organization. Yeah. And well, it's all fun, um, <laughs> but I think it's really a difference of working, you know, at an arts organization too. Um, uh, people typically come to us for you know recreational; they're looking for something fun and interesting. So we try to make things educational, entertaining. But um, for me, it really connect connected me to the city um, and have a better understanding of, of what's happening around the city. Um, I'm, I'm more aware of my surroundings downtown. I think the, I attend the programs. Um, they're, they're fun for me, but, you know, equally important. I love going to a youth program and having a, a kid have some understanding of why we have, uh, multi-story housing, why that's important instead of just living, everyone has their own house. Um, I think understanding density is important for a kid. Um, cause we've all been to design review where adults 
don't understand why we need to build that way. So I think um, teaching- the design review, you're talking about the city's process the city's for approving buildings. And, right, yeah. right. And so right. I think um, those are important lessons for everybody to understand. And if we can get kids to grasp those concepts, I think our city will be better off in the future. So we, so the design review is kind of interesting. It's a, the mm -hmm. community and citizens have a big role in, at least some role in influencing the way development occurs. Right. Um, and so is that something that you're, this is not necessarily, you're not a developer, but does mm -hmm. that happen in other cities in the same way? That's a good question. I don't know if it happens in other cities. I recall living in Chicago, I don't remember knowing of the opportunity or how to participate, um, where I feel like in Seattle, that's clear how you can participate and it's very public process. It's um, amazing how involved and engaged the community is actually in these discussions yes. and there's a lot of passion. Yeah. You I, my, you know, sometimes we'll reach out to a city council member um, and we're just, I'm, my husband and I are surprised people will respond and <laughs> you can actually meet with them and they'll listen to you. Um, and at design review, all the, all the views are heard um, and architects are required to respond. So, so I see what you're saying. Yeah. So because, because here citizenship is defined, there is this role where you, as a citizen, you do get involved in the design process through the design review. So what you're, that, that aligns with SAF and that you right. want the citizens to be well-informed. Right. Yeah. Right. So, and on a lot of our programs, especially in our, our tours, we'll, um, tell people, uh, we might share an example of how this site came to be or what used to be on, how it changed. And if there's an opportunity, we'll share uh, if the public played a role in helping this happen. Or um, in some cases, there's we talk about skyscrapers where citizens didn't really step out um, and then they didn't like the result. Um, and so we say, well, if you <laughs> don't like things like this, here's a way you can help um, change them for the better. Okay. So we talk about things like that. So there's a staff of three, mm -hmm. and then you, it sounded like an army of volunteers. You have a huge... Yes, it feels that way. <laughs> so who are the people that volunteer? Sort of, can you just, yeah. you know, why and why do they um, spend their time volunteering? They come from so many different backgrounds. Um, we have people that are closet historians. You know, they just really love learning and researching about architecture and design. We have architects, um, a lot of younger architects, but all architects of all ages, and they really like to inspire youth. And then we've got people that said that, you know, we have a couple teachers, but people that have lived their whole life walking through downtown, working downtown, they they always wondered what happened in the buildings that they walked by, but they never really knew. Um, and so they, they often, sometimes at retirement, they come to us and say, oh, I want to be a tour guide because um, I want to learn more about these buildings that they see every day. Um, and, a, and a lot of them just want to be ambassadors of our city. They care about our city. They want to share it with other people. Um, and so they come to us for that. I actually had have one tour guide. She thanked me when she graduated from tour guide training program. And I was like, oh, my gosh, well, thank you. But she just said, thank you for letting me do this. You know, I have so much passion for our city and its architecture. And I'm not an architect. And I never had a way to share that. So people come to us so many different reasons and backgrounds. Very cool. So... Shifting gears here, it's kind of we think about sort of development in the built environment occurring kind of horizontally across the surface of a space, but then also it kind of occurs vertically, really through history. And like the Pioneer Square underground tour is a great mm -hmm. example of that. Like there's this whole built environment that's subterranean mm -hmm. that um, you know isn't really apparent. And so, is there a kind of an archaeological or vertical component to the built environment um, apart from like that example? Um, I mean, I think we definitely address. Like, for example, skyscrapers and height. Um, and we, we don't go underground. We're above ground. But we really try to focus on what people can see um, and what's around them. Got it. And help them um, 
just be more aware of their surroundings. So everything from details on a building to um, the streetscape and landscape and privately owned public spaces, um, just so they can really understand their city and be aware. So privately owned public spaces, what are, what's an example of that? There's several of them in, their, in the city. It's actually a, a developer amenities program. So a developer can build taller um, and if they create amenities for the public. And that could be a space like a little park or a parklet, or it could be a daycare center or a transit hub in their building. But um, a lot of what we see in Seattle, it might be a lobby of a building. Um, for example, the city center lobby is a privately owned public space. Um, there's also some amazing um, rooftop gardens in the city. Um, there's one at uh, 4th and Madison. If you you go up and you can be you can just head on the rooftop and have lunch out there. Um, but there's actually several in the city. Um, and that's been a matter of controversy, right, over yeah, the years yeah. because it's in some ways the developers or property owners have sort of um, met, you know kind of taken over and made them less welcoming. Is that yeah? yeah. I've heard that um, some of them are, and some of them are just hard to find. Um, and if you ask if you can go up, they'll say no. Um, sometimes there will be a guard there, but they are supposed to be open to the public and you can go go up there. Um, and why is it important that a city kind of mm-hmm. um, propagate these private public spaces, you know, as part of the development program? I mean, I think it's important for, you know, a developer's making some money off of off of their building. They're going taller. And so it's a nice, it, they should be able to give something back to the, the public, whether it's affordable in the form of affordable housing or a space. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the city, um, you'll find that, you know, there's not a lot of space for everybody, especially right now. Um, so I think it's nice that the citizens have these spaces, but they're also just spaces for, you know, reflection to have a space to have your lunch, um, a space to get fresh air. So I think those are important spaces. And that's interest to a building, right? If there's a it place you can go to, to even building. if you don't work there or and, live there. And yeah. I guess the one amenity that we probably are most familiar with is just escalators sometimes, the, what they call the hill climbs in Seattle. So for accessibility, um, they help you get from a lower level up to a higher level. Wasn't so. there, I think there was a book published that kind of gave all these different walking tours using these spaces. Yeah, yeah, yeah there have been some. Yeah. You know, it's. I think it's fun to think about kind of the history of our built environment here in Seattle and the fact that there people went into sort of that who are long gone now who helped contribute to that. And um, we had talked about Paul Allen, you know, in a recent episode and just what a big impact he had. He had this very specific vision about a particular neighborhood and, you know, here we have it. And we have a sort of a complicated cityscape because we, like in Chicago, you have like a mass, it's a grid or New York City. You can head in one direction and then kind of as... The way you walk will be the way the club would fly, whereas here it's a little bit complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that? How does our sort of the sort of the founding kind of pattern of the city influence our built environment today, or even things that are being built? Because it seems to look a more complicated place. It is. I think it it impacts us on a number of ways. I mean, you look at all the equity issues. You know, there's people that are able to live high on a hilltop and they have these amazing views. And those of us that maybe live in the valley don't have those views. So I think it just creates those, some of those natural divides, unfortunately. Um, I think the water and, and the mountains, I mean, we have all these bridges and um, and they add interest and beauty to our city, but they also create barriers too sometimes just in terms of accessibility um, and then obviously the stairs and the hills are, are really challenging. Um, but I think that architects, you'll hear a lot about Pacific Northwest style. And I think that they use these, these features, you know, these landscape features, um, 
they're more conscious about them and they incorporate them into their designs often and I think can create better designs because of that. So nature, wood, materials yeah. that are specific to our area. But they also are framing the views. So they're they're looking at the topography, they're framing the view to the water or the mountain or something that is beautiful to them um, that people can enjoy. And I think I I feel like that's more consciously done here. Got it. So kind of getting back to SAF, you know, it seems to me that great, like when you see a great work of art, like Hitchcock as an example, like when I saw the birds in fourth grade, I never, you know, crows became sort of menacing. Mm -hmm. So what you do is really change aware, you raise awareness of sort of the built environment. So, and that things look probably more richer or different, you know, for the people that participate in your mm -hmm. programs. Yes. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering what opens up for your members, you know, that are, that remain engaged and learning about their environment from your perspective. I can think of a couple people, like there was one person who had been to several of our lectures and many of our tours one year. She decided to pretty much do almost everything that we offer. And she took a trip to Europe and she came back and she said, you know, when I visited there, I was so, she was so much more aware of, she said she paid attention to how they have their streets, their, the Voonerfs, you know, um, people like the people in cars where you share them. We have, share the streets. We have those here. And what is a Voonerf again? Just it's a street where it's shared by cars and people basically. Okay. So, um, we have like, there's one in South Lake Union, a couple in South Lake Union now that come to top of my mind. Also the Bell Street, there's one in Bell Street as well. Okay. That new space on mm -hmm. Bell and yeah. 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 Um, and uh, she just said that she she realized how much role like the landscape played and how uh, she how interested she was to walk to her next de destination and how in a, in a good city she felt like the landscape connected the pedestrian paths and you know helped her with wayfinding you know to the next transit station and things like that. But she said she felt like her trip was greatly improved because she just had this stronger awareness of things that were around her. Mm -hmm. um, and she was able to ask questions and look up and understand some of the building styles and the history. So she felt like it was really important to her. So the whole viaduct demolition and the sort of the, mm -hmm. the plan for the waterfront, that's going to create kind of a new landscape. Yes. Um, and so what are your thoughts about kind of what the impact will be? It's hard to visualize for most of us because, you know, we might look at a drawing, but yeah. you, you have a deeper sense about the relationship between landscape, building, environment, and place. I'm just wondering where you see that transformation you well, know, impacting. I think, um, I think one of the things when I first came to Chicago or S Seattle, I saw, you know, I felt like this, we have this waterfront that we can access, but there wasn't really a reason to go there. So I think I'm hopeful that the the plans will um, create a more inviting space for people to enjoy. So not just visitors, but residents too. Um, I think in theory, you know, the plans look great and beautiful and it does all the right things for a city. Um, having the viaduct come down in over just like a few weeks or so, it's so much quieter down there, um, which I didn't realize how loud it was. Um, but I think adding beauty to a space like our waterfront um, and make and accessibility as well. Um, those are huge. They should be huge improvements uh, for our city. I mean, I think when you go to Pike Place Market and you see the uh, the new market front, and you realize, oh, eventually there's going to be at this path that's going to connect you straight up to the market. And you know, honestly, the market is a little bit tricky to to get to, especially if you can't walk up the hill or you're in a wheelchair or something like that. So I think that some of these improvements need to happen so that everybody can can enjoy um, spaces like that. Well, you bring up accessibility. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering what kind of programs you've had. On kind of, it's an interesting topic on how buildings can serve everyone regardless of ability and, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. 
And, and we, we're a steep city, you know, as we said, so it's a little bit just built into our overall plan is a little bit more greater challenges. Right. Do you guys do work on kind of... We, I mean, since we are serving a public audience, we, you know, we're not teaching professionals how to build that way, but we do um, use often, not this year, but often we have programs for kids on universal design. So teaching them how to design for all abilities. Um, and they find that really intriguing and important. Um, kids are really in tune with that these days, much more than I was. Um, and I think we also, when we do our tour routes, we try to make them as accessible as possible. They are walking tours, um, but you know, we take a lot of care to try to have routes that go downhill versus uphill avoid steps if we can. And if we do have steps, we let people know. Um, we often have an alternate route on most of our tours. Um, but I would say uh, construction is is pretty tricky right now. Um, and it's hard to run a tour, even our easiest one that just runs, you know, down Fifth Avenue and circles back around Fourth. It, it's just tricky day to day. It changes. Um, you have to cross the street more multiple times. And so if you're in a wheelchair, it's harder. Yeah. Um, so we've had some of those challenges on our tours. Yeah. Cranes yeah. everywhere. Yeah. It's hard to get anywhere without... Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. bumping into these construction sites where you have to walk around the block. Yeah, yeah. So the the High Line in New York, just when I discovered that, it was so amazing. And some people proposed with a viaduct, to, you know, retaining it um, and making it into some sort of pedestrian. Mm-hmm. What do you think about? I thought initially that I, I had seen some ideas and some theories about what could happen. And I thought it was a, a cool idea. But I think it sounds like there were some pretty severe safety issues with that with keeping that up. You know, people propose housing and create a bike path or create a walking path or a park. Mm-hmm. And it sounded really cool, but I think that there was already an investment um, in the other, you know, the the central waterfront plan and that viaduct, the safety issues were too immense. Yeah. So I think it's good that we pull our efforts and focus on one big project. Agreed. Yeah. Also, the it's the waterfront, so it's really nice that the viewpoint step down and yes. allow you, you know, not sort of crowd that space. So. Well, good. One of the questions I ask our guests is to th- just share a place that particularly matters to them in the Pacific Northwest. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, is there any, um, I know you you probably have many places that you love, but is there any space that's particularly um, inspiring or meaningful to you? I there Well, built environment or natural? Uh, either one. <laughs> yeah. I would say like, if I think about natural environment, I I really like going to Discovery Park. Um, I feel like it's close by, but it feels far away. And on a day when I just need to get away for a couple hours, it's easy. Um, And I'm always just inspired at like, oh, we have a space like this in the city that is so lovely and and forested. And I don't ever remember anything like that in Chicago. An urban park in Mm -hmm. Chicago was just that, (laughs) an urban park. Mm -hmm. Um, But I guess in terms of built space, I think a lot about our city hall. It's a building that I really... Um, appreciate. It just feels open, welcoming. And I think it was one of the first buildings that I remember seeing when I first moved here that made me feel like the city was, you know, was progressive uh-huh. <laughs> architecturally. Um, and I think going back, it, it, it's got that Pacific Northwest style. Um, it's contemporary modern. It feels really open and welcoming. And I think it, it, remind, it made me really understand, like, there's all these amazing uh, residential architects in the city that we don't all get to experience and see sometimes, but you can kind of see that in City Hall, some of those same techniques used. I was there for a city council meeting a few weeks ago and I, leaving around 8.30, kind of racing home for my kid and all this. And there was a big line of people that were waiting to get in and they were homeless people. Mm-hmm. I don't know, they were using some sort of the facilities for some reason. I thought that was just impressive Yeah, that there was a place that it's um, the city's hall, not just for the politicians or, you know. 
Right. And someone else told me, um, I heard a tour guide tell people that they were there and they witnessed a wedding there um, when gay marriage first became legal in Washington. I remember that. Yeah. And they said, um, it just right on the steps there. Yeah, and they just thought was that cool. was so amazing that this really is a space for people. A and civic it, place. It, it reflects our culture in our city. Very cool. So. Yeah. Well, good. I wanted to shift and talk about kind of regionalism and globalism and kind of the future because Seattle has obviously just grown in mm-hmm. the last five or 10 years, just, you know, at an amazing clip. And I, you know, I was here before Amazon and before all the cranes and so forth. And so we're becoming a global city. And I'm just wondering how SAF, sort of how you address that, because in some ways, maybe our architecture, our environment is less specific and becoming a little bit, I mean, I think of the Seattle mm-hmm. Public Library, the Central Library, right? We brought in Rem Coolhouse and, you know, people that were not local architects. And I think there was some controversy at the time um, because what we don't have really great architects here locally, right? The EMP is a good example, right? Where they hired Frank Gehry, you know, to design it rather than focusing on people from the region. Right. As if we were, this was in the early 2000s and maybe there was some insecurity or just, I don't to be a global city, we have to have global architects. Right. We- yeah, and I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Obviously, if we've leapfrogged now, we are a global city, we don't really need to prove it. Um, and I'm just wondering where architecture and the choice for these mm. large civic or big, private buildings that are um, sort of of global stature or the intent was, you know, how you feel about that as we've p- progressed from being a v- very much a parochial, smaller outlier within the U.S. to a global city, mostly through industry, right? Through Amazon and mm-hmm. the tech industry. Yeah. I think that we we did hire global architects to do some of those, those, uh, those large projects, but I feel like that's turning, you know? We have a lot of local architects that are doing those projects now for Amazon, um, and I think they're doing really great work. Can you um, share are there any names? Yeah, yeah. there. I mean, Graphite Design is doing a lot of work in uh, South Lake Union right now. Um, Element has had some projects uh, in the neighborhood as well. We've got MBBJ. They're uh, they're based locally. They have offices all over. But there's just a, a few of the firms and some of the landscape architects that are doing work as well. I mean, to me, that's just as important um, as the as the buildings right now, but we've got Hewitt is doing a lot of, a lot of that great work, uh, burger partnership. So there's t- a lot of, uh, great teams that are working together to create these spaces. And I, I live in South Lake Union, so I see that every, I see these buildings every day. Those are just some of the first ones that, that come to mind, Sure, but they're large, uh, large buildings, um, that they're working on and they're making a big impact. And I think that the transformation over time, it's, it's, um, you know, it's been pretty important. And I think our local architects do a really amazing job in, in our city. And I know they're also doing work globally. Right. So I think they're able to take that Pacific Northwest ethic and, and do that in other cities Well, that's as another, well. yeah, another mm-hmm. thing is interesting about Seattle is we have created these local brands like Nordstrom or REI or Eddie Bauer that have also now, now are affecting global culture, right? Mm-hmm. Not just Amazon, I mean, Microsoft. Um, so I'm just wondering how that sort of overlays into architecture um, in terms of our impact in other places, maybe that have different climates and different mm-hmm. priorities. Do you see that happening? I mean, it's, yeah, it's been happening. I know that these some of these same firms are doing work all over because they're traveling. They're hard to get a hold of now. <laughs> but they are doing this global work. Um, I think Seattle is looked at now as a, as a leading city, I think, in architecture and design. Um, I know that not everybody sees it that way, but I think people are coming here now and they're um, we get a lot of requests for private tours for South Lake Union, hmm. um, and uh, we lead our tours, you know, for locals. But people are wanting to know what's happening in that neighborhood. So and, tell us and more about South Lake. Yeah, you know, tell yeah, me what specifically yeah. do they want to learn? 
They, they want to understand the tech and they want to understand green design. And I always feel like green design is something that when I moved to the city, I thought, oh, that's so cool that Seattle is doing these, these green things. But we've been doing it that way for so long that now it's just common practice. Okay. Um, and it's hard to understand that other cities aren't doing the same thing, but they're not. Huh. Um, and so people are coming here from other countries too um, to understand what we're doing. And they always ask me, uh, what's your green building tour? And I said, well, pretty much everything is going to be green building. But um, if you want to see, you know, high tech, uh, come to South Lake Union. Okay. And then what what are the factors that cause green building and green design to be, you know, so intensely done here? I mean, I think for us, it's the the connection to, um, you know, our environment. <laughs> Everyone, people care about that here. They want to protect our environment for future generations. And so, you know, people here are very interested in, you know, preserving water and, elect, you know, all the all the resources. You know, we, we care about saving energy and saving resources. Um, and I think we care about health. And so a lot of times using healthy materials is really important for people. Um, and so, I mean, we look at the Bullet, Bullet Center, the greenest commercial building in the world, um, that I, is hopefully a model for, for other organizations too. But, you know, we look at our reliance on other countries for resources and I think realizing, you know, maybe we need to decrease that in, in some extent. And so to have a building like that uh, be off the grid, you know, just and be able to uh, recycle its own water and electricity, that's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think it just represents new ways to live and new technology. Got it. Yeah. So, and maybe being a newer city relative mm -hmm. to the global uh, yeah. is helpful, mm -hmm. you know? Um, good. And then I just wanted to talk about rain. We, we just, mm -hmm. before our conversation today, we were just chatting about that, that we have a very rainy climate and that oftentimes that for many people, it's kind of a drag. It's gray skies and very, very long mm -hmm. sort of fall, winter and spring. Um, but to what extent does that sort of on the positive note, sort of taken account by the architects working mm -hmm. in this area? Yeah, I think there's a lot that they, that is thought, thought about when you're building in a, in a climate like ours. Um, I guess you're you're spending time indoors often, um, we think. Um, but also, I think, creating those uh, views outside so that when we do have that light, it can come in, and we want our spaces as light and airy as possible. Um, and then I think externally, we have a lot of awnings in the city, so you can uh, walk quite a ways and be protected from the elements. And so we've set up a lot of those, those systems and structures in Seattle that I've noticed it more so than in cities like Chicago. And has it happened organically, just because um, everybody sort of shares the same concern of being sheltered from the rain, or, or are there, is there any planning or requirements that you're aware of in the city? Um, I don't know if there are specific requirements, uh -huh. um, but I feel like it, it's, you also see it in residential too. You see overhangs, angled roofs with large overhangs. And I think it probably is because, you know, we want to spend our time outdoors. And so you create these indoor outdoor spaces a lot um, to protect us from the element, but still let us be outside. It makes sense. Our climate is actually mild. So even it's in the so winter, mild. you can be here say, compared to Chicago. <laughs> yeah, so, I think yeah. Chicago, yeah, we don't really want to be outside. Mm -mm. <laughs> Great. And then you got you have a um, an event or a tour that relates to rain. Right. There's an exhibit in the Center for Architecture and Design, okay. which is the space that we share with AIA Seattle, the American Institute of Architects. Um, and they're actually hosting an exhibit called uh, Because It Rains right now. Um, and then we're doing some public programming related to that exhibit. So we do have a, a workshop on uh, how do you create rain gardens. Um, and then we have also have another program that just talks – uh, more generally about how rain inspires us. So from the built environment to food and cooking, um, basically the way that we live and operate in Seattle. Okay. 
And then architecturally, does Seattle have any landmarks, any um, any places that are built that are iconic um, to the city? And yes. you know, how does that relate to your programming? And yes, um, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of spaces here that are, are iconic. I think. Uh, we have obviously the Space Needle is just the most iconic uh, building. Um, also, Smith Tower is quite an icon. Um, and I would say the new um, the F5 Tower, the, the Mark building, that's becoming an icon. We get a lot of people asking us about that building. For our listeners that aren't aware of that, where is that mm-hmm. located and why was it built? That is, it's a long story, but it's built, it's about at uh, Columbia and f- is it Fifth, I think? Yeah. Columbia and Fifth. Um, and it's, it's a, long-term project but it's a it's a sky it's a skyscraper it's a high-rise it has many many elements to it built by um daniel's development and it's the important piece of it there's a church on the site that um has it's been through many owners but it was preserved by the developer um and they were basically able to build a tall building that um is larger at the top skinnier at the base so it kind of goes over the church um but it saved it allowed it to be saved uh, and then they built the air, they purchased the air rights over the Rainier Club, and they kind of gave the Rainier Club members parking in the new tower. So they were able to kind of maximize their their floor plate at the top, so they could probably charge a little more for those fancy offices. Sure. Um, preserve this church, um, and I would say, all in all, it's a great project and a great example of what can what can be done if you really think about um, what's best for the city. Um, the church that's there is a, an event space. I actually was just there this weekend inside for the first time for an event. Um, so it's beautifully preserved, but it still has some contemporary touches. Unforgettable. I went to a bar mitzvah yeah. there recently. Yeah. It was just like pretty out of this world. Yeah, it was yeah. It was pretty great. And yeah. I haven't been inside the F tower, F5 tower yet, but, um, but it is a beautiful skyscraper and it's elegant um, and modern and I think it does all the things a good skyscraper. So here should. we go. There's a vertical, an example yeah. of vertical kind of architecture and different layers. Yeah. You know, um, and it's it, Daniel's development is local, so I think that that mm-hmm. that, that probably influenced some of the decisions, what yes. to do or not to do, right? Because a different touch if you live here in the community. Yeah, and read up on that story because there are a lot of interesting details. It took a long time <laughs> to happen. So you mentioned the Space Needle. I think it's fascinating. A lot of the discussion over the last 10 years has been about preserving view corridors mm-hmm. toward it. Mm-hmm. I mean, an icon, when we think about a medieval icon, there's this big gold frame because it's a holy, you know, the image somehow is sacred mm-hmm. and you have to build layers of goldenness of separation from the mundane world. Mm-hmm. And we use the word now icon in a non-religious sense, but there's still that issue of crowding and wanting to keep it kind of in a sacred space. Um and there's just been a lot of concern about because as Seattle's developing these view corridors, which mm-hmm. do define because of nature, they are very important historically, are disappearing or changing. Um, but for the Space Needle, it seems like there's a focus on somehow trying to maintain that, like from Capitol Hill to be able to see that. It's really hard right. with the development. So right. um, so you, you are helping people connect to architecture and the built environment, mm-hmm. right, through awareness. It sounds like everybody on an intuitive level knows that that's important, mm-hmm. you know, I think the Space Needle is an example mm-hmm. of that um, in terms of like the civic identity right. of a place. Um, but it's just going to be a challenge increasingly because we're growing in population and the city is going upward. Right. You know? I mean, I think all of our views are changing. Um, and I think when South Lake Union was being developed, there was a lot of conversation about the um, all the buildings that are sitting on the near the waterfront now and how tall they should be. Um 
And, you know, I think it affects people in Queen Anne. It affects people all over um, the space. You know, you have to think there's so many things to consider. Um, and I think that's important for people to understand when you build when you build a building. There's all these things to consider. And then there's the public opinion and, and process as well. So when you have a finished product building, <laughs> there's a lot that went into that. Right. Um, and we, you know, as an organization, we try to do our best to share those share those stories. And help all the people that are involved in the sort of the discussion, particularly the public, be mm -hmm. really aware of. I mean, with the MHA, the Mandatory Housing mm -hmm. Affordability, it was so fascinating because a lot of the people that were were. I went to the city council meeting. I listened to 180 people speak, and a large cohort of the people that were against it were um, because they were um, fighting displacement and inequality. You know, and many of the people that were for it were also, uh, you know, believe having more housing is going to create more, uh, you know, more affordability and more equity. So completely opposite sides of the argument around this particular legislation, um, but with the same kind of intent. Right. You know, everybody kind of wanted the same thing. Right. So digital devices, we're a tech hub and the world is increasingly digital and just walking around, people, we're all on our devices so often. So we're maybe less aware of our built environment because we're in this sort of, sort of focused on this sort of digital environment, which is very compelling, especially for younger people, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like my son. Right. Um, he wants to be on his mother's phone and play race car games. That I think for every minute that he's on there, he's going to be less aware of his physical surroundings. So is our field of vision collapsing? And what impact is that going to have on our built environment when the younger generations are less connected maybe visually to that because of these devices? Right. I, I feel like I notice it every day. I don't, you know, I'm one of those, I don't wear headphones when I'm out in public. I like to connect with people. But I do think we run the risk of people just not caring about what's around them because they're so focused on what's on their screen and what's on their phone. Um, and I, I don't always think about it in terms of the built environment, but I do think about it in terms of how do, how does SAF reach those, that audience? Um, cause you know, we're doing walking tours and sometimes you're like, I will just look it up on Wikipedia. Um, and so, um, but, and you know, our tours are docent led, so we try to build a connection as well. Um, but you know, that is a challenge for us. We keep trying to kind of figure figure out how to reach these audiences. And one of the things we are getting ready to do is we are releasing a architecture mobile tour app um, very soon to help kind of build some awareness of of our built environment with the with a younger generation too. So it's interesting. So being connected to the built environment and then being connected to people are really very yeah. interrelated. You know, yeah, and your tours are obviously set up to bring you know volunteers in touch with uh, people of all ages and. And the physical, experiencing the world, um, not digitally, but physically. Right. Um, and I think that is important. Right. Um, also just for, you know, civic mindedness, just being in touch with one another. Right. Um, I guess the other thing is when you think about, you know, we originally talked about your background in, in sort of equity issues and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And so, so what extent does, do, you know, buildings provide shelter, but then they also foster connection um, among people? I guess through your foundation, you're trying to sort of, Focus sure, people on in that. one way, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think when you're in a group, you try to engage people in having these conversations about the built environment and landscape and things around you. But I think we also really want people to explore that on their own too, and encourage them to go into a space and ask questions and look around, and you know, be part of the city. Okay, and then where do you see us headed, kind of architecturally as a city, in the next say five or ten years, with all these cranes and all this new growth? Um, any predictions as to kind of how I the city is going to get shaped? I am not an expert, but I think that uh, we're definitely becoming more dense, a more dense city. Um, I th I think in some ways that's good for our city. I feel like just the what I've seen over the last several years, 
Um, it's more vibrant. We have more diversity in our city. I mean, obviously, we've just talked about it's brought us more issues we have to deal with. Um, I think those are going to continue until we really, our housing, our housing stock catches up. Um, I feel like, unfortunately, our city was just behind for so many years with things like transit and housing, and we're paying the price right now. Mm -hmm. But um, I hope that we can catch up and uh, have more opportunities for people that need housing. But it's, we're becoming a more global city, but we're becoming also a city that has better transit and better services overall. Mm -hmm. So I think if we can equalize for everybody, that'll, that would be a, the place I'd like to see us go. It's a very slow process, right? It is, yeah. 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 Big, but they're big budget projects that take a long time to yeah. come to fruition. Okay, great. And we ask our guests to bring something physical. I don't know. Did you do anything? You know, I don't, I don't keep a lot of stuff, so I try to think about what would that be. But I thought about um, these these earrings that I wear, and um, I was because I was trying to think of what's on me that I. But I um, the earrings that I have on, I've had them. I, I've thought about it. I think it's been over twenty years because wow. I bought them in Chicago, and they've you know fallen down the sink and everywhere else. But they're um, you know designed object and something. When I was younger, it was probably a splurge purchase for me, but they are. Um, I wear them almost every day and they, but they're designy, you know, they kind of have this imperfect, they're little hoops, but they have an imperfect shape and maybe they make me somehow feel connected to design where they're not quite, quite perfect, but they're, uh, I don't know, there's something that makes me feel in touch with that creative side, maybe. Awesome. <laughs> great. Well, great. So um, let's see here. And is there anything coming up that would be fun to announce just to get sort of people engaged in? Yeah, we have so many things coming up. Okay. Um, I We just sent out a newsletter this morning, and it was so full that yeah. I was like, whoa. But we have um, our architect our tours, obviously. Um, we start our full season in May. So um, next week we'll be talking – we'll bring out our um, Federal Avenue tour and Madrona tour, which are adding being added new to our season this year. Madrona so neighborhood. Yes. Nice. So we're excited about both of those, as well as the Denny Triangle tour later this summer. Um, and then our mobile app – is coming out as well in May. And then we also have our new design soiree series, which we've just released a few of those events. So um, those are fun, kind of behind the scenes events of residences and all kinds of fun stuff, hard hat tours and things. Um, and then summer camp for kids. Oh, fun. We have uh, two summer camps this summer as well, uh, Northwest School and Coyote Central. And what do they do at the summer camps? They do, one of them's, um, two of them are model building camps. So they're and then the other one is about designing your city. So really getting kids out to see their city and then understanding the design um, that goes along with that. Great. Well, thank you, Stacy, for yeah, being our guest you. today. For those of you that have kids that you'd like to send them to Architecture Summer Camp, you can send an email to edwardk at ekrag.com. Uh, visit our website and find a link to the seattlearchitecturefoundation.org. And join us next time uh, for a conversation with Paul Sussman. He founded the Seattle company Office Space. And he helps businesses, business tenants, find uh, spaces in downtown Seattle and surrounding neighborhoods for their companies. He has really great insights into how businesses and the business culture of downtown is transforming Seattle, our culture, and our broader community. And he'll give us a glimpse into the future of the city through these business trends. Um, his personal story is also equally fascinating, originally from South Africa. So you won't want to miss this. And thank you again for listening to EK on the Go. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and any other places that podcasts are found. And to learn more, visit us at ekreg.com. For now, have a great month. We'll talk with you soon.